texto dice el amén, el testigo fiel y veraz, el soberano de la creación de Dios. Conozco tus obras, sé que no es ni frío ni caliente, ojalá fueras lo uno o lo otro. Por tanto, como no eres ni frío ni caliente, sino tibio, estoy por vomitarte de mi boca. Dices, soy rico, me he enriquecido y no me hace falta nada, pero no te das cuenta de que el infeliz y miserable, el pobre, ciego y desnudo eres tú. Por eso, te aconsejo que de mí compres oro refinado por el fuego, para que te hagas rico, ropas blancas para que te vistas y cubras su vergonzosa desnudez, y colirio para que te lo pongas en los ojos y recobres la vista. Yo reprendo y disciplino a todos lo que amo. Por lo tanto, sé fervoroso y arrepiéntete. Mira que estoy a la puerta y llamo. Si alguno oye mi voz y abre la puerta, entraré y cenaré con él y él conmigo. Al que salga vencedor, le daré el derecho de sentarse conmigo en mi trono, como también yo vencí y me senté con mi Padre en su trono. El que tenga oídos, que oiga lo que el Espíritu dice a las iglesias. Esta es la palabra de Dios. Thanks be to God. Gracias, Melody. Ooh. Kids, welcome. You're our honored guest this morning. We're so glad that you are here with us. If you're new to Trinity, there are four Sundays a year that we give some of our Trinity kids servants a break and uh, have less classes downstairs. And we also want to expose our kids to all the elements of the worship gathering. And so we're really glad, kids, that you're here. You can see what mommy and daddy do every week. Uh, I want to let you parents know that beginning sometime soon, in the next couple of months, we are going to be introducing a, uh, a fourth week of classes for our third to fifth graders. It's only been three weeks out of the month. We're going to increase to four weeks in the month. Here in the next couple of weeks, uh, we'll let you know when that's going to happen. But I just want to give you a heads up on that. Uh, kids... We're glad that you're here, and I think today would be a really interesting uh, picture to draw based on the text that we just read, all right? So you look down at your Bible, you read what the words say, and you see if you can draw a picture. I would love to see your masterpiece at the end of our gathering, okay? Like I said, this could be a, a funny set of pictures that I get, so um, let's see what you guys come up with. I would love to see that afterwards. Well. Uh, a few years ago, I was sitting right where Earl is right here on the second row uh, on a Sunday morning listening to the liturgy, and I took a swig of Miriam's coffee, and I almost threw up in my mouth immediately upon drinking her coffee. I wish I had taken a little bit more time to really analyze what was going on with her cup of coffee. Uh, right away, I looked at the floor, and I noticed another coffee mug. Why did we bring two coffees? Everyone knows that Miriam brings the coffee and I drink her coffee. Uh, so what was this garbage that I had just put into my mouth? Uh, it was last week's coffee. Um, I kid you not, the previous week we had tucked that bad boy down in the corner of the pew and that mug had sat there for a full week. Uh, and I threw that stuff back like it was a Starbucks cold brew, man. It did not take... I did not take enough time uh, for the cold mug to tip me off. I didn't look down to see the second mug down there underneath the pew that should have told me that something was up. I just grabbed and chugged 
and nearly chucked right there. We all know instinctively that coffee is good in only one of two ways, really hot or ice cold. There is no middle ground for coffee. Lukewarm coffee isn't coffee. It's disgusting. Uh, it's literally good for nothing. No one strolls up to the Starbucks counter and is like, hey, can I have one of those tepid cups of coffee that you guys are so famous for? No one does that. There's literally no purpose for that lukewarm brown liquid. Jesus has the same issue with the Laodiceans, the church at Laodicea. They've lost all sense of purpose. They're good for nothing. Look at verses 15 and 16. I know your works. You're neither hot, you're neither cold nor hot, so because you are lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. The Laodiceans, like lukewarm coffee, were good for nothing, and it is making Jesus sick to his stomach. Well, what specifically is it that makes Jesus sick? Thankfully, uh, we aren't left to wonder. He wrote this letter to tell us what nauseates him. So one last time this series, in these seven letters, let's get our collective letter opener out and get into Laodicea's mail. And one last time, we're going to work through this letter the same way that we have in previous weeks that I've preached by investigating the four parts of the letter, like any letter that you would see even today. But we're going to take a, ma a magnifying glass to the to from. Who is it to? Who is it from? What is the body of the letter, the content of the letter, and then the conclusion of the letter? So here's where we're headed with this. Two, the good-for-nothing church in Laodicea. Carbon copy us, Trinity Community Church. From Jesus, the amen, the faithful and true witness and beginning of God's creation. Here's the big idea of the body of the letter. If we don't invite Jesus in, he will spit us out. And then finally, Jesus promises us his victory and his throne. So let's start with that two field right now, uh, the good-for-nothing church in Laodicea. Well, Laodicea was about 100 miles inland from Ephesus. That's the first city that we studied all those weeks ago. And Laodicea was famous for at least three things, self-sufficient wealth, effective medicine, and iconic fashion. This could almost describe any like, major city in the U.S. right now, right? Laodicea's abundant wealth was fueled by three main things. First, Laodicea was the banking center for the region of that time. A lot of gold uh, flowed through that place. History tells us that when the city was devastated by an earthquake in A.D. 61, it refused financial help from Rome. They were so proud of their city, they were proud of their capability, their, their ability to sort of pull themselves up by the bo uh, bootstraps and fi fix what the problem was, and they rebuilt themselves from the ground without any outside assistance at all. The Roman historian Tacitus uh, said of Laodicea, he said, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us, from Rome, no imperial help. Maybe you've noticed in the last seven weeks, as we've studied each church, we've seen that the culture of the church squirms into the culture, the, the, the culture of the city ends up squirming into the culture of the church. Look at verse 17. He says, for you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, here it is, and I need nothing. The city and the church began to resemble one another. They both saw themselves as self-sufficient, they were just fine, thank you very much, all by themselves. No outside help needed. But we, just as Jesus followers, uh, uh, we as Jesus followers are called to be in the world, but not of the world, 
right? We've heard this before. I like this quote from Alistair Begg. He says, the boat is supposed to be in the water, but the water is not supposed to be in the boat. Our church is supposed to be in the world, a force for real good in the world. But once the water of the world starts leaking into the boat, we're going to sink. We're going to be a useless fixture in our community. A mere building that fills up for an hour or so every Sunday with no reverberations in our communities on the Monday to Saturday. The fact that they were a banking center isn't the only reason why they were so wealthy in that city. There's another reason. Laodicea was home to a renowned medical school that made some critical advancements, particularly a world-famous eye ointment. It's the second reason they were wealthy. And the third, Laodicea's wealth was a result of their hold on the fashion of the day. They were famous for their tunics that were made from a local black wool, a very unique uh, fashion offering that they had there in that city. They wore black to flaunt their wealth. Well, despite the advantages that all of their wealth afforded them, there was a pretty significant drawback to living in the city too. There wasn't an uh, adequate and convenient supply of drinking water for the city. Not to worry, Hierapolis, a city a few miles up the road, was and still is famous for what you see on screen, hot springs of waters believed to contain healing properties. The naturally warm water from these springs had to be channeled down to the city of Laodicea. There are still large numbers of insulated clay pipes laying in the ruins of these cities. Uh, Even to this day, you can find them. A few miles in the other direction was the city of Colossae. Colossae wasn't known for hot springs, but for cold springs instead. You can see one on screen. They also channeled their water into Laodicea. You can imagine that as the thermal waters came down from Hierapolis, and as the cold water came up from Colossae, and as they reached to Laodicea, they had no doubt been transformed from cold and hot into lukewarm water. And therefore, at least in Jesus' mind here, useless. Because of the city's water situation, Jesus' words to the city here uh, would have been clearly understood by them. They knew where he was coming from and what he was getting after because of their experience. And if you're anything like me, I've always sort of heard this, uh, this letter, this story about Laodicea and thought that Jesus is saying that he would just wish that they, they would just put all of their cards on the table, right? Either be on fire for Jesus or just blatantly rebel against him. But don't be in the middle. But I, I don't think that's what's going on here. Like our coffee situation, hot coffee is good, iced coffee is good, lukewarm coffee, useless. Uh, Hot water was useful, cold water was useful, lukewarm water was useless. Hot churches, useful, cold churches, useful, lukewarm churches, useless. Well, that's the to field. That's who it's to. What about the from? Look at verse 14. The words of the amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creations, creation. The words of the amen. Isn't that a funny nickname to give someone, to give Jesus? The only other place in the scriptures where we find someone being named amen is in Isaiah 65, verse 16. He who is blessed in the earth shall be blessed by God, the God of amen. And what is the blessing of this amen according to Isaiah? It's found in the next verse. You can see it on screen, verse 17. For behold... I create new heavens and a new earth. So Jesus is writing to this church that is good for nothing in its city. He's saying, look, you've got wealth, you've got the goods, but you're not making any difference. But Jesus came to make a difference. He came to launch a whole brand new creation, 
of which he is the firstborn, the firstborn from the dead, the first one to get up out of the grave on his own volition. That is the new race that he has started, of which you and I are part, a death-defeating, sin-trampling, life-eternal-giving race. But he's looking at this church in Laodicea, and he's like, they're not hot, they're not cold, they're not nothing. They're not carrying on with the family characteristics of their beginnings in Jesus' new race, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the only solution to the problem that the Laodiceans have. He alone is the amen to all of God's promises, the stamp of approval to all of God's promises. He's the answer to what ails all of us. That's the point of how Jesus is setting himself up in this letter. He alone could dig them out. He alone can dig us out of our situation. Okay, we've seen the two, we've seen the from, and now let's look at the main ideas in the body of the letter here. Here's the big idea, kind of like a portable truth that you could take home with you today, and it's hopefully memorable. If we don't invite Jesus in, he will spit us out. If we don't invite Jesus in, he will spit us out. I know this is kind of a, a crude way to put it, but we're just going to go with the language of the text, okay? Jesus spitting us out. Point number one here, Jesus is nauseated by lukewarm churches. Jesus is nauseated by lukewarm churches. We sort of already teased out a little bit what Jesus means by lukewarm. Uh, good for nothing. Collectively, a lukewarm church is good for nothing. Individually, though, think about this more individually on your own. Individually, lukewarm hearts say, I need nothing. A church is good for nothing. Individuals say, ah, I'm good. I don't need anything. The lukewarm are spiritually self-satisfied. Now, none of us think of ourselves in this way. None of us in here, sitting here, think, ah, I'm pretty good on my own. None of us would raise our hand and say, yeah, that's me. I don't need anything. I'm good. So what is the litmus test? How can we know if we are numbered among the lukewarm this morning? One author is really helpful here. He says, to find out whether you are among that number of self-satisfied, lukewarm Christians, don't look into your head to see if you think that you are needy. Rather, look at your prayer life. It doesn't matter what we think in our heads. The test of whether we are in bondage to spiritual self-satisfaction is how earnest and frequent and extended our prayers for change are. Do you seek the Lord earnestly and often in secret for a deeper knowledge of Christ? for greater earnestness in prayer, for more boldness in witness, for sweeter joy in the Holy Spirit, for deeper sorrow for sin, for warmer compassion for the lost, for more divine power to love? Or is the coolness and perfunctoriness of your prayer, prayer life exhibit A, that you are spiritually self-satisfied and lukewarm? If this is you, Jesus says, you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. And if we don't begin to do something to change our condition, Jesus will eventually spew us out of his mouth. The church was good for nothing, and it made Jesus sick. It doesn't seem to me that Jesus was concerned about their doctrine. In previous weeks, uh, he's addressed those things and head on in those churches, right? It seems like Laodicea was doctrinally sound. They were on point. They were a white-collar sound, doctrinally sound church, but they were unneedy. They were self-satisfied. He wasn't concerned about their doctrine. He was concerned about their indifference. What was fueling this indifference for this church? Look at verse 17. Jesus says, for you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. 
not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Well, this is not the only section in the scriptures where we are warned of the death grip that wealth can take on our hearts. Grievously, when it, was fully, when it has fully occupied the landscape of our souls, there's no room left for Jesus, and we forget him. Deuteronomy 8 says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. You forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. Listen, you may be middle class this morning. You may be upper middle class. But surely we all know that. In terms of history, at least, we are all in like the 0.1% of all of history's wealthy people. And so we have to ask ourselves, have we been lulled to sleep because we don't really need anything? The water in the shower is always warm and clean. The food in the fridge always cool and fresh. The job we have offers a steady paycheck that keeps on coming. We're just not that needy if we're honest with ourselves. Look at Luke 18. Jesus said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. In our wealth, have we forgotten that our greatest need is Jesus? Have we forgotten our desperation? And have we forgotten to be useful in God's kingdom? Laodicea had. Listen, the reality is that you and I live worship, play in a middle to upper middle class community, most of us. And soberingly, Jesus said that it's almost impossible for a rich man to get into the kingdom. Let that rock your world for a moment. Don't shrug it off. We are rich men. You are rich women. Getting into heaven is unlikely for us. Jesus says it. It's just as likely for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom. So we need to desperately pray that we'll have the wisdom in knowing how to go about warring against the American dream and its grip on our hearts. We are so self-sufficient as Christians. We don't need a thing, but needless Christians are lukewarm Christians, and Jesus vomits lukewarm Christians. I think there's some overlap between the church at Sardis uh, that we studied a few weeks ago and the church at Laodicea. I don't know if you remember how I described the church at Sardis. Sardis had become a church for themselves, a church for themselves. So has Laodicea, I think. Because of their wealth, their giving was way over budget. Their facilities were on point. I read last week that they have excavated the ancient ruins and their church took up an entire city block. I mean, their church was one of the it places to be in town. But they made Jesus sick. How about us? Sure, we, we show up on Sundays, get a little offering, but if that's all we do, it just means we're a church for ourselves. And we should be a church for ourselves. But we should not just be a church for ourselves. Trinity, we must not be a church just for ourselves. Are we so lukewarm that we have lost our usefulness in this city? 
It's interesting, when you lay this letter over the backdrop of the historical situation, some of these things that Jesus says here make a whole lot more sense. Like, look at verse 17 again. He says, for you say, I am rich, but really you are poor, blind, and naked. Remember, materially, they were rich. They would have gotten this. They would have understood this. But spiritually, Jesus is saying, y'all are poor. They thought that they could see clearly. Remember, they were home to that med school that was famous for aiding eyesight with that proprietary ointment. Eyesight was something that they prided themselves on, and Jesus was like, nah, you guys are blind. They thought that they looked good. Remember, they were famous for those black woolen tunics. Jesus is saying that they're naked. He's pointing right at the things in their context that would have specifically spoken to them. And so Jesus goes on to correct them. They've got it all twisted. They're looking for worth and value in all the wrong places. It's like the lyrics that we sing around here every once in a while, and we'll sing them here in a few minutes again. Laodicea would have done well to internalize these truths, and so would we. Here's what we'll sing. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame. As summer flowers we fade and die, fame, youth, beauty, hurry by. But how many of us in here are actually living in this reality? My heart is constantly drawn to wanting more. Maybe yours is too. Whether it's more money or more favor, it doesn't really matter. It's just a distraction from Jesus. And before you know it, the landscape of our souls is so consumed with finding worth in one another or finding worth in what we own that we forget that there's a better way. We've been gifted this amazing, perfect identity at the cross where we don't have to wonder what our worth is before the Father. There's a gigantic irony here in the end of this song, and the last verse teases it out so well. It says, two wonders here that I confess, my worth in Jesus and my unworthiness. My value fixed, my ransom paid. Where? Only in one place, by one man, by one means at the cross. So how about, how about you? If Jesus were to put the cup of your life to his lips this morning, would the, would the experience for him be hot and encouraging, cool, refreshing? Would it be anything of value when he tips the cup of your life to his lips? Or have you meandered in sort of, into sort of a, a useless Christianity? And I say meandered because I think most of us don't even know when we're lukewarm. This was the case for the Laodiceans. They didn't even realize that they had become a church for themselves. Look at verse 17. It says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Here it is. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They didn't even know it. So perhaps today is a wake-up call for you. This last week was a wake-up call for me. Maybe you haven't realized that you're lukewarm. Make today the day, church. Let me ask you a question. If someone were to ask you to prove that you are, in fact, a Christian, how would you respond? I think the best answer, at least according to Jesus, is to show them our usefulness in God's kingdom. Point them in the direction of the unlikely and marginalized people that we serve, the poor, the incarcerated, the immigrants, the refugees, the widows, the orphans, the least of these, as Jesus calls them in the Gospels. This will require us to be a church not just for ourselves. A church indifferent to these sorts of people is a useless church. Are we, are you, 
of any intentional spiritual or even social value to your neighborhood and your community? Are your sights set on meeting the needs of the marginalized like Jesus did so consistently? Are you ever encountering situations where you bear the actual witness of gospel hope into a conversation with a coworker or a family member or a neighbor? If not, can I say this to all of us? Jesus is nauseated by us if we are not doing those sorts of things. It's a hard word to hear this morning. And if you do not repent, as verse 19 says, and become zealous, he's going to spew us out of his mouth. There is plenty of reason for us to be on our knees in desperation when we see a text like this. And I really debated whether or not to do what I'm about to do next this morning. I don't want to overplay the card here. Uh, Many of us have found unique ways to shine light into our communities. And I applaud that and encourage that, and I'm rebuked by that. We have shared meals with neighbors. We have adopted children. We have helped women keep babies that they were thinking of aborting. We've given our lives to the preservation of battered women. But there are still some of us, I'd bet, that are lukewarm, don't know it, or maybe don't know what to do about it. Yeah, we claim to be Christians, we show up on Sundays, but how useful are we in God's kingdom? So I debate about whether or not to do this, but I'm going to. A few weeks ago in the family meeting, we had a woman from an organization called Safe Families. She came and shared their vision for how they come alongside families that are in need, uh, particularly children whose parents are in halfway houses or in prison or having a hard time landing or keeping a job. Uh, The children either need very short-term care while the state figures out what to do with them, or they need provision, simple provision like uh, diapers or formula or something like that. Or sometimes just like a quick errand needs to be run for for the parent or for safe families or whatever. So not all of the service is people-facing, in other words. You don't have to be engaging with strangers if you're super introverted or something like that. There are options for, uh, for those of you who are like that. Um, Sometimes the parents that are in trouble just need a little bit of life coaching. It's not a huge time commitment. She made that clear. And she left left a sign-up list. But when I picked up that list after our feast together that night, there was was only one name on it. That's right here. I brought it up with me. Um, Maybe it's because the sign-up list was in a strange area. I'm not sure. I don't even know where it was put. So, So maybe that's it. Maybe this is all for naught this morning. Maybe it's because the instructions from her weren't clear. Or maybe for some of us, we have let our love go dormant. We're not hot. We're not cold. We're not nothing. And we've become good for nothing. Oh, we're good. Good Christians, but good for nothing. It sickens Jesus when we close our eyes to the neediest around us. I right now in a dramatic display, I'm going to add my name to this list. And then I'm going to put it down here this morning, right? There goes my name. And I'm going to send this to her this week. This is not to pressure you. Maybe the Lord has other things in store for you to serve in a way that demonstrates that you're not lukewarm. But maybe some of us in here will be stirred to action and serve these people. So I'm going to put that right there. You can all smirk at me later and tell me how manipulative I am. Uh, But maybe the Lord would work in some of our hearts in that way this morning. Uh, whether it's safe families or something else, be good for something, for Jesus' sake. If your stomach is churning a little bit 
right now, like mine is, wondering how you're going to respond to me, um, or just wondering how God views me, Jesus in particular, am I lukewarm? If your heart's beating a little bit faster, if shame is seeping into those crevices in your heart, you're in good company. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. But I don't want to leave us here. Jesus brings his counsel to bear here as the conversation begins to turn more hopeful. Let's get the running start back in verse 18. Track with me. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. There's so much hope here coming off of what we just came off of. Jesus says that if we just come to the right place, we can alleviate our uselessness. He says, buy from me gold so that you can be rich. Buy from me white garments to hide your shame. Buy from me salve so that you can really see what's really going on. But if you read carefully, this all kind of seems like nonsense. How are they supposed to afford the provision that Jesus offers? Back in verse 17, Jesus just told them they were broke. They've got nothing to offer. How do you buy this stuff when you're broke? But our problem is worse than just mere brokenness. We can't even make a living because we're blind. And we're not just blind, but we're naked. We are poor, blind, and altogether indecent. No clothes. Jesus is saying that we, every last one of us, are hopeless without him. So how do we buy gold and garments and ointment when we are poor and blind and naked? Well, he gives the answer in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So number two this morning, Jesus nourishes repenting churches. He's nauseated by lukewarm churches, but he nourishes churches who turn from that and zealously repent. I think probably many of us in here have grown up thinking that verse 20 is an application of urgency to unbelievers. Hey, Jesus is knocking. Open up the door and believe. But that's not in keeping with the context here at all. Verse 20 is aimed at lukewarm Christians who have slowly become indifferent to Jesus. It's addressed to church people to church people like you and like me who do not enjoy the extravagant riches of Jesus or the pure and plush garments of Jesus or the soul-healing medicine of Jesus because we keep the door shut to the inner room of our lives. Jesus wants, if only for a moment, to fuel what we talk about sometimes here in our hearts, FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out, the text isn't so much about fearing God's wrath as it is fearing what happens if we don't open the door to him. It's about fearing what we'll miss out on, the glory and the wonder. What kind of intimacy could have been kindled with the Father? What kind of progress could have been wrought in the kingdom? What kind of holiness and wholeness could have been sparked in our hearts and souls? Jesus wants us to remember that our deepest joys come in our relationship with him. So he's not telling the Laodiceans that their first order of business is to get back to work. No, he's saying, come back to me. That's the priority here. Why is this? Because doing for Jesus flows out of being with Jesus. Doing for Jesus will only flow 
out of us being with Jesus, opening the door to let him in. When we ignore Jesus knocking, we're missing out on so much glorious wonder. Don't fear missing the latest bits of the news cycle. Delete Twitter off your phone. Fear missing out on an intimate relationship with Jesus, your Redeemer. When Jesus describes the intimacy he, des- uh, he desires with us, he talks about it like he's coming over for dinner. Let me just stop. You don't have to delete Twitter off your phone. I don't mean to pharisaically say that. For me, I had to delete Twitter off my phone because it was sucking the life out of me, okay? That may not necessarily apply to you. You probably can steward it better than I can. When Jesus describes the intimacy that he desires with us, he talks about it like he's just coming over for dinner. So what do we do? Jesus says, be zealous and repent. Turn from your navel-gazing, turn from your dogged pursuit of riches or whatever it is that you're after in life. And he says, turn to, turn to me, turn to Jesus. Trinity, instead of becoming complacent, let's become repentant. There's so much hope because there is always, always, always a path back with Jesus. And that path is paved with the stones of repentance. Repentance is such a common Christian-y kind of word, isn't it? But it is drenched in hope. It's hope because God accepts us every time we turn around and limp back, every single time. I don't know about you. I thought that I would be further along by now in my walk. I thought I would be a more thoughtful husband. I thought I'd be a more engaged father. I thought I'd be a more selfless pastor. I thought I'd be a more holy liver, a more faithful prayer, and I'm not. It's a disappointment to myself. But because of Jesus, God still takes me back in love. And this is the difference that I always try to point out to my kids. I've tried to point it out to y'all before too. Do I sin less than my kids? Hopefully to some degree, but I kind of doubt it. But that's not the major difference between me and my kids. The primary difference isn't marked by sinning less, though I hope I do, but by turning from my sin to Jesus more, more quickly and more often. That is the major difference. Christians should be doing this all the time. And every time we do, we invite Jesus in for more intimate communion. So anytime we turn, we turn from something to something, from something to something. What were they and what are we to turn from and then to turn to? You ever had one of those salesmen knock at your door in the early evening hours and they want to discuss something with you, like purchasing a new internet package or uh, new windows or new gutters or something like that? Usually, like, in my house is the fun thing when someone knocks at the door. Oh, who is it? Let's see who it is. And then when you pop open the door and you see it's one of those guys, there's immediate regret. Oh, man, I should have hid behind the couch so they couldn't see that we were in here. Turn the lights off. But what generally, when you've made the mistake of opening that door, if you are one of those people in here this morning, I, I don't know, I apologize. But uh, what generally is your tack with those guys when they come to your door? You don't typically invite them in. You're trying to be cordial. You're trying to act like you care, sort of, about what they're trying to sell. You try to keep your poker face strong. Uh, You probably, though, step out onto the porch with them, right? You're not opening the door to let them in. You're, like, pushing them out onto the porch and then, like, off of the porch um, so that we can sort of move on with our day, like whatever it is that we're up against, right? But I wonder if some of us end up treating Jesus like this. 
when we do finally get around to connecting with Jesus in one way or another, our interactions are like those interactions out on the porch. Business-like, lukewarm, just trying to get it over with so we can get on to the rest of our day. But have we forgotten who Jesus is and who we are? We are Jesus' bride. We're leaving our spouse out on the porch while we turn the TV on, but he wants to come in. We turn the TV on. We turn the podcast on. We grind for another dollar. Meanwhile, Jesus is knocking. Jesus wants to join us in the dining room. He wants to spread a banquet for us, and he wants to eat with us, and he wants to talk with us, and he wants to commune with us. How do you buy gold when you're broke? You invite a rich man in for dinner. You invite Jesus in to the dining room table of your heart. There is an intimate communion and fellowship with Jesus, which many of us need to seek in earnest prayer. Because when he dwells in the innermost room of our affections, he brings us the power we need to conquer our indifference, our, selfless, our selfishness, and he gives us the power to live for others. But let us not forget, doing for Jesus flows out of being with Jesus. Don't get that twisted or flipped. Well, that's the body of the letter. Let's draw this letter in this series to a close here this morning. This text closes with a promise to those who conquer. Verse 21, he who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I don't know about you, but that sounds amazing to me. Sitting with Jesus on his forever throne. Remember, we are all carbon copied. We are CC'd on this letter this morning. So it's as if Jesus is handing this letter to us and begging us to read it for ourselves. And he writes us to offer us a share in his universal rule if we will conquer our lukewarmness and our spiritual self-satisfaction. That's motivation enough for me as a Jesus follower this morning. And there is only one way to get that kind of power and that kind of victory. Unlock and open the door. Ask the living Christ to come in and commune with you every day, all day. This text has been wrecking me and encouraging me in so many special ways this week, and I, I, I hope I can bring you in on it. I've had such a sweet week with Jesus, and I hope you can too. Circling all the way back to week one of our series, I reminded you of the big idea of the whole book of Revelation. Ultimately, Revelation is about how the believer can enter into Jesus' victory and claim it as our own. We enter into his victory, and we claim it as ours. It's easy to get into the confusing weeds of Revelation, but when we do, we miss out on an amazing opportunity to see the glory of King Jesus. When, we, when trying to understand Revelation, I started our series with this quote, and I'm end with it. Vern Poitras writes, we must start with God and with the contrast between him and his satanic opponents. If instead we try, if, if, try right away to puzzle out the book, pu to puzzle out the details, we are starting at the wrong end. Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Don't try to puzzle it out. Don't become preoccupied with isolated details. Rather, become engrossed in the overall story. Praise the Lord, cheer for the saints, detest the beast, and long for that final victory. In other words, if you were to climb up into a skyscraper that looks out over the whole letter of Revelation from beginning to end, you'd see the story arc is simple. Jesus wins. That's it. Jesus wins. There's this 
line from the Avengers movie Endgame that highlights where the whole story of history is headed. Thanos shoves off Iron Man and prepares to snap his fingers, which is the plot line that I won't ruin for you this morning. But as he gets ready to snap, he says something very powerful. He says, I am inevitable. I am inevitable. In other words, Avengers, no matter what you try to do, no matter how you try to fight, no matter how you try to dethrone me, no matter how you try to erase me, it's all useless because in the end, I am inevitable and I'm going to win. And the same thing, in a much truer sense, is real about us, church. Jesus is inevitable and so is his victory. Revelation 17, 14 is inevitable. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. This is the end for which you and I were made to contribute to the unifying of all things in Jesus Christ. It is inevitable, so you might as well join in, all right? If you don't, you're on the losing side. The thread that weaves all of history together is Jesus, the victorious king of the universe. We don't run from Satan in fear and from this world in fear. No, we stand in faith. That's the victory. And when we fail, which we will, we lean hard into Jesus' victory in our place. He conquered for us. So lay aside your lukewarm and invite Jesus in. Let us not be a good-for-nothing church. If we don't let Jesus in, he will spit us out. Martin Luther wrote a song 500 years ago, and I almost bet he had Revelation 3 opened up when he wrote the song. It's this, probably familiar with it. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe seeks to work us woe. His craft and power are great, armed with cruel hate. On earth is not as equal. That's why we got to let Jesus in, because we are not as equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord of hosts, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. There's that victory that we are promised. It's inevitable. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Oh, the prince of darkness is grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, Jesus, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Laodicea, Trinity, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, ah, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. <laughs>